Uh, So our readings from John chapter 5, starting at verse 16, which is 1,068 in our Red Church Bibles. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Thanks, Paul, for reading that. It's Trinity Sunday, and we're taking uh, a little break from uh, the normal series we've been going through on Sunday mornings, and we're thinking about this title, Why the Doctrine of the Trinity Matters. I don't know about you, but sometimes when people tell me, oh, I'm going to tell you something that should really matter to you, my knee-jerk kind of reaction is, yeah, it probably won't. And then when someone tells you that thing is doctrine... You think, oh, it's probably going to be boring as well, isn't it? I'm going to be yawning uh, before the end, especially as it's warm. And then when they tell you it's the doctrine of the Trinity, or you start to think it's going to be really confusing, isn't it? And it probably won't be very practical. Walking out of here, I'm not going to be left with anything I've got to do. There'll just be some things going around my head. But that's strange, isn't it? Because we all sort of live our lives doctrinally. You live your life doctrinally. I live my life doctrinally. You know what I mean? So imagine there's a, a young man 
who meets a young woman, uh, if it helps to give them a name, I mean, call them Ben and Holly or something like that. Just give, give them a name, a random name, and imagine them. Imagine them as they meet. And there's, there's some excitement in the meeting. There's a bit of drama. There's a bit of drama to it. And he, he starts to find out about her, and he starts to notice certain things. Certain things occur to him. Like whenever, whenever he suggests getting some food, she's always saying, let's get Mexican. And he's fine with that because he loves Mexican food. And he notices that whenever tulips are in bloom, she always seems to be happy. And then he starts to spot and pick up on the way she treats other people in a really kind way. And he begins to file all of that stuff. He, he, he remembers it. He tucks it away in his head. And it forms, well, I guess you could say it forms a kind of doctrine about her. You'd never say it like that. That would be a strange thing to say uh, if you're meeting someone. This is my doctrine of you. But that's what it is. He thinks he knows about her, describing who she is. It's not dry or confusing. In fact, it's almost the opposite, isn't it? Because it flows from enjoying knowing her. And wanting to be clear in his own head about who this other person is. And it, it, it never just stays there. This kind of stuff is it, not academic. Real information like this is not academic. It's practical. And often the very first thing it produces is a kind of doxology. That's just a fancy word for praise. And you'll hear him say things like, I found the perfect woman. She loves Mexican foods. You know, people that talk that way, you know, your standards and where you measure perfection is that Mexican food flies you straight into perfection. And he'll say things like, oh, you should see her face when she gets some tulips. And she's just in nature kind. All that stuff just starts to come out from him. It it doesn't just happen, these kind of relationships. I think back uh, to when I was younger and single, and you begin to have that experience when you're out of childhood a little bit in the way you talk, and into a kind of mature friendships you've got with people. You feel those kind of things as well, don't you? You file things about your friends. It comes out in the way you speak about them. Praise flows out just in friendships. But you think back to this guy on the screen, it, because that kind of doxology, it leads on to, well, you could say it leads on to discipleship, because he starts to adjust his living to fit his doctrine and his doxology. Those aren't abstract ideas. They're not things that are disembodied from a real person. You, you see how it works, don't you? When she's had a hard day, he knows exactly what to cook. Someone else is trying to impress her, and they buy roses, and he just smiles on the inside because he knows that's not going to do it. <laughs> I know what she really likes, and I'm not telling you. And someone accuses her of being unkind and he finds himself thinking, I've got to do something about this. And he says something. His doxology, his doctrine, his doxology, it leads on to discipleship. Real doctrine, when you think about it, when you get to know it, real doctrine is not dry or or impractical. It It leads to praise and it leads on to joyful, practical living. That's what it does. And if you've never thought about the Bible that way, if you've never thought about this book that's open in front of you that kind of way, that it will lead to praise and joyful, practical living, then we're going to think about that now. Because in the Bible, God draws us. Well, he draws us into the drama 
of who he is. And we, we begin to see how he relates. And as you do that, you get, our, you get your thoughts clearer about him. It forms a kind of doctrine about who he is. And, and those who know God, those who come to know God in the Bible and beyond that, those who come to know God properly, uh, they can't help but praise him, not just for what he does, but for who he is in and of himself. Doctrine leads to doxology. And that leads on to the most practical changes in life. It leads on to, you don't need to call it this every time, but it leads on to discipleship. And you don't think, well, doctrine is something I've just got to know when I get to the end of it, as if I've ticked the boxes, because God is boundless. You never come to the end of him. No, you continue in this drama you continue getting to know him more deeply, filled with more profound praise, life transformed more and more. That's what's meant to be going on with this. As a Christian, is that true for you? You found that over the past year, relating to God, getting to know him more deeply, things you've discovered about him as you've read the Bible. This led you to praise in a more deep way and your life's begun to change. It's a good question to ask, isn't it? When was the last time something in your life changed in that kind of joyful way because of something you learned about God? It's meant to do that for us. And you think, well, thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity, well, well, thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity and why it matters, will that do that for us even this morning? Will it move us in that kind of way? Uh, Look, the Trinity is... It's a way of describing who God is. We're going to think about it now. We're, we're an Anglican church, and from our beginning, that's been important to us. So uh, the Church of England has these things called the 39 Articles of Religion. Here's the first one. I think I've put the one on the back of your sheet. It's slightly different. I think this is meant to be the easier language to understand that church society did. You can follow along with that. Let me read it. It says this. This is Article 1. There is only one living and true God who is eternal and without body, indivisible and invulnerable. He is of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. He is the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. Within the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons who are of one substance, power, and eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or if you want to see that last bit a little bit more simply... Here's a little summary for you. There's one God who's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. And you might be thinking at this point, it's just what I thought you tried to trick us, but it's just what we thought. It is all confusing. It's not very practical, is it? I mean, where does it even come from? All the way through the Bible, the message is clear. There's one God. You go back to Exodus and Deuteronomy and read the Ten Commandments. It's very clear there. You shall have no other gods. But me, that's what God says. You read on into the prophets, prophets like Isaiah, where you hear God saying things like this. I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. You come over to the New Testament. It's exactly the same. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, yet for us, there is one God. So how come the apostles, how come the apostles, Paul and the others, and the early church, didn't just worship the Father, but worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as God? One God who is three persons. 
Well, quite frankly, it's because they were confronted with the person of Jesus, and there's no other conclusion you're left with. What was suggested in the Old Testament is made explicit in Jesus. They were drawn into the drama of God revealing himself for who he is. And one of the places you'll see that is in this part of John's Gospel. If you've got it there still in front of you, page 1068, all sorts of things in here. We're just going to pick out some of them. Uh, the issue is quite clear, what's going on here. I mean, we've, we're kind of parachuting into a conversation, but some of the Jewish leaders are, are angry with Jesus. They're getting a bit upset because, well, well, they know what Jesus is claiming. The issue is there in verse 18. If you've got it there in front of you, it says this. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They know what he's claiming. He's claiming to be God. And in response, Jesus describes, well, in part of what's going on here, in response, Jesus describes his relationship with the father. If you're someone who likes taking notes down, here's the first little heading you can put down. And it's this, the father and the son are distinct persons. Now, why do we say that? Well, the reason to say that is because there's been some in church history who've wanted to say about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this one God, well, it's kind of like he sometimes puts on a different hat. He appears in a different mode, if you like. Sometimes as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as Holy Spirit. But it, it's really just the same person appearing in a little disguise. But you read Jesus, and that can't be right, can it? Look down to the bottom of our reading, the end of verse 30. Jesus speaking about himself and the Father. He says this, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Now that would be odd, wouldn't it? That'd be an odd thing to say if you were just really talking about yourself. No, it speaks of a relationship there. Or you come back up the passage to verse 19. And you'll hear Jesus say this. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. And it's pretty clear, isn't it? There's distinct persons. I, you might say, well, all that has to mean is that Jesus is someone other than God. He's not God. He is distinct, but he's, he's not really God. The, the modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses would say that kind of thing, or people from a Unitarian church. You might have met some. But not if you listen to Jesus carefully. Because while he's wanting to say the Father and the Son are distinct persons, he also says the Father and Son are inseparable in being. And what do we mean by that? It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? It's not the way we often talk. But what we mean is father and son possess attributes of God. They are both equally God. Just look at this passage again. Here's a couple of things Jesus seems to make clear. He, he says that his words are inseparable from the father's words. Verse 24, do you see that? Let me read it for you. You can follow on on just looking at it. He, he says this, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes me has eternal life. Except he doesn't say that, does he? You see what he says? I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words 
and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Strange way to put it. We've got friends who live up in Aberdeen. I was visiting them once. As a friend coming into the family situation, they had several children. And I was struck on one occasion where Ange, the mum, was speaking to Ella, one of uh, her daughters. You know, you know this if you've got friends who have young children. The way uh, children sometimes try to play mum and dad off against each other. You know that kind of thing? They want to get something and they, they'll play mum and dad off against each other. I was really struck by the way Angela said to Ella, Ella, do you remember what we've told you? Mum and dad speak with one voice. Um, just a little phrase I thought, what, what a great way to put it. Mum and dad speak with one voice. You can't play us off against each other. If daddy said that, mummy says it as well. Mummy says it, daddy's saying the same thing. I thought that's really helpful for children. Parents attempting, even imperfectly, to be consistent. Do you want to do that? You don't want to undermine each other. Mum and dad speak with one voice. That's one thing, isn't it? That's one thing when two parents are trying to helpfully say something to their children. But you realize what Jesus is saying? In the context of him speaking about his relationship with the Father, Jesus is saying, I and the Father speak with one voice. Whatever I say, the Father also says. My words are equally God's words. You believe his words, it's the same as believing the Father. The words are inseparable in that way. Uh, But it's more than that, because he also says his actions are inseparable from the Father's. You see verse 19? Uh, Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. And you you might be saying, okay, but... Surely all that has to mean is that Jesus copies some of the things that the Father does. But again, he doesn't end the sentence there. He says it like this. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Now sit up for a moment. Just sit up and have a think about that. Think about what Jesus is saying there. Did the Father create the universe out of nothing? Well, the Son also creates the universe out of nothing. Does the Father sovereignly rule everything? The Son also sovereignly rules everything. Is salvation a work of the Father? Well, salvation is also a work of the Son. There might be operations within it, but it's their work. It's inseparable. Does the Father have no beginning and no end? The Son also has no beginning or end. Does the Father enjoy eternal life? The Son also enjoys eternal life. Does the Father exist infinitely? The Son also exists infinitely. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And it's even more than that. You keep reading this passage and there's just more that keeps coming out. Remember, this question that started it all off is Jesus is claiming he's equal to the Father and you see what he's saying in answer. Verse 22 and 23, Jesus says his honor is inseparable from the Father's. 
Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. How is the Son to be honored? Well, in the same way as the Father. How is the Father honored? Well, he's worshipped. Jesus is fully God. And if you're thinking, well, David, that's Father and Son. That's only two. I thought this was Trinity Sunday. They only gave me 25 minutes. Can do everything. But later in John's Gospel, when Jesus speaks about sending the Holy Spirit, God sending the Holy Spirit, he just says a wonderful thing. He says this, it's up on the screen for us. Jesus says about the Holy Spirit coming, he says, if anyone loves me, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. But he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. And you understand what Jesus means there. Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes to live with you, it's just like the Father and the Son coming to live with you. Because whatever the Father and the Son are, in terms of them being God, the Holy Spirit is equally those things. This drama in John 5, it leads on to doctrine, being a bit clear about who God is. And does doctrine lead to doxology? Does it knock on one step further? Does knowing God really make us praise him? Let me just try and show you, as we begin to draw things to a close, some of what this means. See, in the coming of Jesus, God's done something truly wonderful. One who is himself, infinitely and equally God, has taken on a human nature. In history, God has met us face to face. We can truly know God. If God had sent just a created messenger, we could say, but... How can you really tell us about God? You can't know everything about an infinite God. We're not really meeting God. It's only secondhand information, but the coming of Jesus means God has come. And he's made himself known because the Son is equally what the Father is and equally what the Spirit is. When what Jesus says about God is not secondhand information. When you are listening to Jesus, you're getting to know God firsthand. And what does Jesus let us know about God? I think one of the mistakes we, we can be tempted to make is when we're thinking about the Trinity, we think of it in these terms as if, as if the Trinity is a maths puzzle to solve or a, an engineering problem to figure out. How does it all fit together? Now, there's thinking to be done, but when you listen to Jesus, you, you feel here he's saying, look, God's not a problem to be solved He's someone to be known. And what is God like? What is God like? If you're someone who's linked your life up with this God, what will knowing him be like? Did you notice his character as we read through it? Just think about these verses again. The Father. What is the Father like? See verse 20? The Father loves the Son. Shows him all he does. Verse 23, the Father wants all to honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. What's the Son like? 
Verse 30. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. What is God like? What's radical other person-centered love? Eternally the Father, loving the Son, sharing everything he has with him in fatherly love, wanting him to be honored. Eternally the Son, loving the Father, and wanting to please him. And as he comes into the world, wanting to please him all the way to the cross to save people like you and me. We, we talk sometimes, don't we, about Jesus giving his life for us. But before that, before that, there's something more central to who God is. The son loves the father, does it for him. He wasn't needy in any way for us, was he? He didn't need us. You sometimes feel that, don't you? Well, doesn't that mean I'm not up to very much? Doesn't that mean that I'm a bit vulnerable. No, not at all. Uh, we've got two little boys, Jules and I, a few months back. They were at school. We went to the cinema without them. It was terrific. And over dinner, I couldn't help but tell them. I said, guess what we did today? What? We went to the cinema and the look of horror on their faces. And then the words came out, without us. Without us, as if the entirety of our lives had to revolve around them, as if mummy and daddy couldn't be happy for even an hour or two without them. We've missed out. You sometimes feel like that, don't you? Well, if I'm not the center of everything, doesn't that mean, isn't that going to mean it's going to diminish me in some way? When I miss out, one writer put it, put it like this, and I think really helpfully. No child wants to feel they have to be the cause of their parents' happiness. Every child is more secure if they feel they're the result of the parents' happiness and love. What a cruel burden to put on a child, to think they've got to cause their parents' happiness. And now you think about this God. We're not the cause of his happiness. And much, much better, we are the overflow, the result of this Trinitarian joy and love together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who then make people to know him that he'll save. Now, because Jesus is God, we can know God truly, and he is good. Does doctrine lead on to discipleship? Does it impact the way we live? Well, here's a couple of things. It's got to remind us, doesn't it? If we want to know God, if you're someone here, maybe coming along, you want to know God, then we must listen to Jesus. There's no knowing God that doesn't take all he says seriously. And it also means for us, and this can be quite hard in our culture, isn't it? As people talk about belief in God and talk about being spiritual in all sorts of ways, and you'll have had those conversations like I've had them as well. But this means no one really knows and worships God. No one really knows and worships God unless they know and worship Jesus. You can't know and worship God without knowing and worshiping Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes God known to us. Well, time's gone. We could think more. But there always comes a point when we're thinking about God when it's good to pause our thinking and remember to bow in worship. And that's what we're going to do now. The music group are going to come back up, but we're just going to have a moment.
There might be something that struck you from that passage, something you've maybe not thought about before. Just have a moment, maybe to praise God, to thank him for something. Just have a moment of quiet to do that. And then when the music begins, we'll stand and we'll worship God in song together.